0: This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. five, check for sound. Four, it's showtime.
1: Three,
2: let's go.
1: You're listening to the Pro Audio Suite, a program for audio and voiceover professionals. Welcome to another Pro Audio Suite, Now, we did mention last episode that this episode will be a plug-in special, Uh, but unfortunately, due to logistics, that'll be our next episode. But we do have a very special guest this week. He's a songwriter, musician, producer, engineer. He's worked with a list of names too long to mention, but I will mention the studio Sound City. His 40-plus year career now sees him working from his own studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, The studio is called Palette. His name, Jeff Silverman. How are you, Jeff? Very good. Thanks for
3: inviting me here. Uh, it's a pleasure to babble as much as I possibly can.
1: <laughs> well, that's what we're good at. We will be babbling because we've got we've got Robbo in Sydney. G'day, Robbo. G'day. George in Los Angeles. Hello, George. If you're,
4: if you're here to babble, you're in the right place. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> and we've got Robert in Chicago. Hello. So today we're going to talk about, because your career, just to give us a, in fact, I should ask you to explain your career or give us a rundown, but... Um, you go way back into the 70s in the music industry, and you've dabbled in every side, both sides of the glass as a as a instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, engineer, producer. You've done the lot. Uh, did I sum it up well? Or oh, please
4: go on. Please
1: go on. <laughs> you've got a
4: composer for film and TV.
3: Well, oh, sorry. I did that. I have done many things, and that's what happens when you get older, but uh, we won't say how old.
2: Can I just mention my favourite credit that I found on your website was um, songwriter for the Chipmunks. I did, I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> the residuals
3: weren't too bad. Who might have complained?
2: <laughs> did you have to
3: write them really fast? Yes. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> no, they took care of all that. <laughs> but uh, no it was good it was working with the son bagdasarian and his wife who took over after the father who created all that it was a great experience uh and this was all done at sound city studios which is really where it started i won't go back too far but basically i went out to california in 76 joined up a service called music contact service for 25 bucks that was like a, a gem that you could go in and find any bands that were looking for guitar players or guitar players looking for bands and so I signed up, and I found this guy Rick Springfield, and I went—I have no clue who he is—and I went into uh, Tower Records the night before the audition and found a record or two and learned a couple songs and thought, oh, this is pretty good stuff. This is uh, his I think Wait for Night album. So we went out and uh, I auditioned, and they called me back again, and I think they were impressed that I actually learned one or two of his songs and. Uh, I got the gig and it was great because my goal going out to California at that time was to find a recording band and, and get out of the club thing and the lower profile gigs to get into something more highbrow. And this was all my introduction to Sound City Studios and Joe Godfried and this whole amazing, incredible vibe that was going on during that time that Rick was signed to them. And I sort of got adopted into this family and they took me in and, uh, let me have any open studio time that was available to basically artist development, which is pretty much of a dead science right now. I mean, it's a dead theory, even though I believe in it. And I try to do that with the acts that I produce. And I worked with a guy by the name of Bill Drescher, an amazing engineer who at that time was a house engineer and wanting his break. Rick, in turn, was Having a lot of problems, uh, still being cast as teeny bopper. You know, yep. he did a children's show over in in the states that brought him over from I think Australia, and he just couldn't get unbranded. And uh, so we were always opening up for acts and getting left in the road, and one thing after another, bad break after another bad break. And in the meantime, I kept on recording at Sound City Studios and developing my own writing and producing skills, and then even engineering, watching Bill because he was fabulous on the. All those vintage boards out there. So it was a great college education for me. And then um, Rick and I kept writing together during that time and uh, working on some of his albums that were never released. And um, I am now babbling, but we played some small club out at Montrose for playing half cover songs and half originals. And just because we needed to play. And he came in one day and he said, I need you to help me read for something. I'm going to audition for this soap opera. Next thing I know, he walks in the next day and he says, I got the part. It's General Hospital and I'm going to have to leave the band. And I went, damn, (laughs) you're going to lose that $50 a week gig that we got (laughs) playing cover songs half the time. (laughs) At that point, he was signed to RCA and things were starting to look okay. but nobody really knew if it was going to take off. And before we knew it, he uh, like an overnight success. It was a miracle to watch it. And this is after I said no playing in the bands because all they were offering was equal share of live performances, and no retainer at all, and I stupidly said no. But at the same time, was so happy to watch him become an overnight success in six months. I mean, it's just yes. absolutely o- unbelievable.
1: overnight success in twenty years, probably twenty years, twenty <laughs> <Yeah>. years, <laughs> and twenty years and six months. Yeah. And
3: uh, I, I was very happy. And uh, that time, it was probably the best thing that I didn't go because I later signed a deal with Motown as a staff writer and.
1: So, now you've traveled, in fact, you know, the, the amount of work you've done in studios, you've actually covered the whole gamut from absolute 100% analog uh, to these days in the box. I have. So, take me back but, to your first experience of working analog when you had things like a splice block and a razor blade.
3: <laughs> you mean, and tape hanging around my neck and little pieces <laughs> on my little finger that I was going, what the hell was that? That sounds <laughs> yeah, familiar. <that's> right. <laughs> sounds familiar. Uh, uh i i think it's great to come from that era and i think that that brings a sense of familiarity with analog what that meant and uh it's not just to put a tape emulator on something and go i'm on tape land it's genuinely a sound and it's a sound that degradates as you all know that it happens over a period of time that that tape is running over those heads and things get a little bit flatter and they get a little softer and they you know, and over a period of time, depending on how speeds and how hard you're hitting the plus six or plus three, what kind of tape it's, it's all subject to change. And that's something that doesn't happen, I think, in the, in the digital world where they're all so acclimated to the consistency. But what I like is the, uh, the challenge, which has always been, is to try to achieve that in recording and mixing. And uh, my wife's project was the first real accomplished what I wanted and that was to find that pillowy feeling. The the thing where you could just crank it up really loud and not feel that it's biting your ears yeah. and these very yeah. yeah. I'm not a tech tech like many of you are here, but I mean I know what works and I know what sounds great and uh since I upgraded into HDX LAN with the sixty four bit the plugins are better and the sound is better and the the capabilities of achieving Uh, You know, and using a lot of the UA plugins, which I believe are are just outstanding as far as going towards that traditional you know, classics that that give you that sort of outboard sound. But still, the tape is, is an animal unto itself that I don't know if anybody will ever really recreate. So I think it's up to us as the engineers to find a way to reproduce it. And the only way I know how to do that is to have experienced it.
1: Do you know what I reckon this is, though? I, this whole thing about uh, looking back to the way people used to record is because the recordings back then had errors. They were real. The, the timing exactly. wasn't, the timing was all over the joint. In fact, I, I heard a really interesting comment the other day. The problem is, if you're a singer, you're the only weak point now because everything else can be fixed and you can with a vocal, you know, you can change the vocals and stuff. Mm. But Melody, always. Auto-tune. Can't create a performance, though, right? Correct. And I, and I think that's why people go back, because there is, it's not just nostalgia, it's also there's something there that's missing now.
0: I, I think what a little bit of Perfection, is a, too much perfection. I'm sorry. Too much that. perfection, exactly, yeah. because I, I wanted to sort of run a session in a more analog workflow, because I think a lot of what analog is, I mean, it is the sound, and I, I can talk about that, but a lot of it, I think, is also just the way the session flows. And so a singer does a take, and it's got a little whatever, a thing in it that's not perfect, but it has a an emotion that's great. And then the singer says, Oh, I want to do another take. And and back in the day I was like, Well, can you really do it better than that? Because I'm about to erase what you just did. But now people can sit there and overdub and overdub and overdub and pick apart and use a little bit of each take. And so no one's ever finished. They're constantly working on it. They're constantly picking at it. And I think the nice thing about analog is that it made you move forward, made you make a decision and go on to the next part and kind of realize at a moment when, hey, we've got something that's good, let's go forward instead of just getting too fine-tuned with it where you squeeze all the emotion out of it
1: for perfection. Yeah, it's, it, it's like being a painter where the paint never dries. Mm-hmm. And, I think and, the, words, oh, wow.
3: the words that come to mind more than anything that were the most spoken words at that time were flat, sharp, early, late. I mean, that's, I said that so many <laughs> times. But the end result is what you're all saying. is the performance had to win. And it, it, I've, ta- I've taken projects before we had all this pitch equipment. And uh, for example, God bless his soul, David Cassidy came in the studio one time and he, was a, he, he came up with some really good uh, vocals, but uh, the tuning was a little suspect. So and I'm not being nice. So I got together <laughs> with a good friend of mine who had an emulator and this was the only way we could think about doing it. And I, We had literally spent hours upon hours.
0: Can I, can I uh, guess how you did it? You locked the sampler to the tape deck, flew it on the even, sampler. We didn't even have that to, it.
3: to lock. It. We didn't have the empty to lock.
0: <laughs> so oh, but go ahead. No. But, but then you pitched it in the sampler and played it back onto the tape somehow. Yep. He had yeah. to
3: play it back to me, and we had to punch it Holy back cow. in. cow. I had to figure out where that pitch was going, either flat or sharp, and to go the opposite on my VSO on the 24 track. I did GH114 at that time. And then, uh, and then get it into a sampler. He had to sample it at the right place. Then he had to truncate it. And then he had to get it ready to fly back in. And I had to punch it back in. So we worked yeah. literally oh, the entire night. And we, were, we didn't sleep at all. And I remember that David came in the studio with a, some sunglasses on. He was like, <laughs> I was, I said, okay, you can take the sunglasses off now, David. You know, don't <laughs> need them in a dark studio. But he came in, sat down, listened to the whole song from top to bottom, turned around with a big sheet and grin and just said, that's great. And I went, oh, Okay. So we did our job. It's almost like Melodyne now or anything we do. To me, I think there's a lot of artists that have a fear of the technology. You know, if you come from the idea that if you hear something, then I didn't do my job. You know, if right. you can get by through a whole vocal and not have the artifacts or anything's obviously sounding like share, they keep it real, you know, watch the dips, you know, watch the come. Are you coming from above on a dip or are you coming from below on the dip? Are you going to be bluesy on that note or are you going to hit the note, on, you know, on it? One of the hardest records I've ever done was a blues record because where do you anticipate where somebody might want to actually go to a major versus a blues note, and when they don't, so you have to almost be the singer and anticipate it when you know that they didn't quite make it. So you're it's it's reperforming in a way. Re-performing, exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's
4: incredible. Come
0: I on. I've seen that workflow with the sampler just because one of the studios I used to intern at they took that song War. And they, they did like a dance remix of it. And the, these guys were amazing with samplers. And they were locking it to the 24 track with mm-hmm. But That would have been much easier. Yeah, but they, I mean, it, it, insane what they were able to do with a sampler with like, you know, not even 30 seconds of memory. And now it's like, man, like GarageBand. <laughs> you know, but in, in the middle 90s, it was it was really amazing to see that. And they were doing exactly that. They were that, that was the way autotune was done prior to a plugin was to get it into a sampler and pitch it <laughs> fix it do, you, do you mind if i go
3: back a little bit the the whole idea of nashville and i don't mean to be dissing it because we love it the, the the musicality the musicianship here is unbelievable you can find just about anything and anybody here this that's anything from great to outstanding you can
0: the, yeah you
4: trip on three of them in the airport
3: yes yeah, you know, yeah,
0: like like my experience with nashville is you go into like the total hole-in-the-wall bar and, and it's like the most amazing musicians are sitting there in the corner playing and that's just like their Wednesday night gig and it they're great like really great and you can't find that in Chicago and Chicago's got a number of good musicians but it's well they're probably busking actually yeah yeah and, and,
3: and that, <laughs> that's that's been the attraction of, of being here not just country music but it's been the idea of people coming here and hooking up virtually is bringing in that talent But my goal is thinking a little bit further ahead, is not having to be here and getting more people into some form of recording where I could easily make it, again, simple for the end user, which in this case would be the musician. And I might be in Africa or, you know, anywhere. It doesn't really matter. And I could just hook up with him and say, I need a part. I want to get my clients on the other line. I want us all three to be able to see each other on Skype. You know, that brings the personality into it, too, which... The last thing I want to do is to have them pipe it in because the one thing I don't have to do with these guys is say a lot, but the things that I do say, even if they're simple, can completely give them a different take on the approach to the take. It could be a little th- softer, th- but can you hit this signature line here? Oh, oh, okay. And how about a solo that, you know, uh, feels like the signature line things I couldn't put into writing before, uh, I would hand it to him and say, here, do your thing and give me back what you think. I don't want the musicians to produce the record. And it's just that I don't have to micromanage him as much as I would be to some of the people that aren't as talented or as experienced. I
0: think that's the thing about any kind of talent, which is like, you know, the difference between having a great voice and being a voiceover talent is many times the ability to take direction and to understand direction. And that goes the same for musicians or voiceover talents or even an engineer, you know, like someone says to you, I don't know, the mix sounds too blue um flubby flubby and well what does that mean and a good engineer will be like "Mm, i know what you mean hold on try this how's that yeah it's great and you know these non-words that mean things to people and then sort of being that interpreter of what it is that you can contribute when people don't know how to express to you what it is that they want you to do
2: i get Mm -hmm. accused of making flubby flubby mixes all the time (laughs)
4: <laughs> I, I just couldn't think of a nonsense word yeah <laughs> oh man i gotta i mean i'm looking at the list of of your of your credits um there's no way we can talk about all of them probably or even three of them but i'm gonna i'm going to pick one name right out of the gate just because i probably have my longest fandom and that would be George Clinton. Oh yeah, oh cool. um, yeah, good choice. What was the extent that you worked with him?
3: What was your 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 duty? Actually, we did uh, paint the White House black, and we did uh, martial law, which were quite extensive. I mean, there's quite a lot of celebrities at that time, from Yo-Yo to Dr. Dre, and uh, I worked with Kerry Gordy, which is being signed to Motown. I had the honor of meeting Barry and working with him a mm-hmm. little bit, and of course his sons, Carrie and went over to be the head of A&R in Paisley Park at that time. That's when George was signed to them. He had quite a lot of success in the A&R side of things during that time. Hmm. And, uh, Carey always had a, like his father, they're very loyal and they, they get a team together of people and they keep them. You know, it was really great that he would call me up and I didn't have the biggest studio in town. I didn't have all the bells and whistles, which helped him too on the budgets, but he came because it was the sound I was getting that he liked. And he liked the room and he liked the capability. I was always trying to stretch on the end, even from the first CD burner, that was $35 a pop every time you Disc. burnt the CD wrong. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it, I was always trying to stay on top as much as I could as much as I could afford, which he really aspired to. But he liked the musicality. So George came in and he knew this was not a, lo- a high-profile scenario and he came in with the best of attitudes. Carrie was always great at bringing that in the studio as well, making sure everybody was feeling great. But I really had a lot of admiration for George Clinton. Very smart man. I mean, I just found him to be very understated. You know, you could easily take him as mm-hmm. being somebody like what? And I mm-hmm. I found him to be extremely intellectual and uh, very respectful. Everybody that came around his crew was very respectful because at that point it was in my home. We, you know, it was in a home premise, although it was out in a, in a five hundred square foot, you know, reconverted garage area. Still, is mm-hmm. you know it they treated it like it was a, a great place for them to be creative at. And were you at, working as
4: engineer on that project? I was,
3: yeah. Producer? No, it was engineer mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, it did master at that time. They had it mastered somewhere else, but I didn't have the plugins for that kind of thing either. Mm-hmm. I remember working with Bernie Grumman, who was the, the guy mm. at that time, and uh, I remember going in and saying, Bernie, can I get a deal? And he kind of laughed at me, and he went, uh, well, I can't give you a deal, but what I could do is I can tell you how to save money by coming into my studio, being prepared with a two track, a half inch master, I'll edit it up and do these, put these tones here, do this here. And I always had much respect for, for him on that, but that was my go-to guy for mastering at that That's point, cool. until he taught me basically to be more independent and start being more active in just understanding the process. I wouldn't say he was a mentor, but I had certainly admired his work and he, he certainly t- taught me how to, do the same thing with other people i can sort of maintain a sort of a price but t- tell people how to save as much as they possibly can in the process which i try to do over all my clients because nobody has deep pockets
0: that's a that's that, a great way that, to say to someone who's like everyone's always asking for a deal it's like oh, well, i can't give you a deal but i can show you how to get the most out of this whole process that's a that's wonderful i, I think that's a wonderful way to uh, uh, approach that so
3: it gave me much respect for him as well
2: i think yeah You've obviously learned a bit from um, from the people that you've worked with. Is there something that you use regularly still?
3: That's a good question. Um, I've just been following my instincts so much, it's hard to tell where where the influences come from and where you sit down and you just trust that voice in the back of your mind. It says it's okay to get out of the chair now, and that, that's always something that Robert knows. I'm, I'm up sometimes at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning, and... <laughs> Sending out this weird email, going help, and, and he actually answers it sometimes, which is really weird. But uh, <laughs> right, right. that's it a good. That's you a, or me. Well, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think both at this point. I think. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd like to keep my marriage together as well, so I've got to sort of allocate my prime time when she comes home and to her, and, and then that puts me into two shifts. So it's okay. I I, I don't mind working that late. It's, it's less distractions, and I can really focus, and it's all focus work. And it's all vibe. But I wish I could answer that question more directly, but uh, I, there are so many people going back to Bill Drescher and watching him work and, and things that I learned from just watching, sitting back into really great environments like Sound City, and I keep coming back to that, but that was my training ground. That was my college education. And the rest of it, I think, like anything else, uh, it's not what you necessarily learn as much as what you take and you make yours you just mm-hmm. kind of accommodate I think the Beatles were really good at I don't want to compare myself to the Beatles, but I remember them saying that they were influences of other people, you know so many different things you know Preston and they 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 would really admire the people around them that gave them their their sound, but how they regurgitated and put it out was really their original one of a kind sound so i I would hope that maybe one day somebody I would have a signature that would be something you would go. That Silverman sound, but I don't think that that's it as much as I try to keep a level of consistency no matter what I do of, uh, of sonic integrity and always try to figure that every mix that I sit down with, I don't necessarily want it to do the same way. I have a certain basic way I like to start, but I don't necessarily want to always do the same thing as boring. And if I get bored, I, the mix is going to sound bored or it's going to sound like I'm cutting corners. And I, I try to make that my sort of mantra is that everything sort of you you sit down with is a new challenge. It's sort of a new way to look forward a little bit into something you haven't done before or a new way to, I mean, this is no different than what Robert did for uh, the the source connect plugs. It just had to be something that was in a different way and had to take a different way of looking at it and figuring. And that's why to me it was worth sitting with him and uh, just watching this amazing thing happen where I was trying to learn at the same time, he was willing to adjust to the user-friendly aspect,
1: which well, was really I, I important.
0: Think, I think there's probably an aspect of it, which is like every engineer probably learns something from every production they do. And every band that works with every new engineer and producer also learns something. The whole process is a learning process. And yes. if anybody walks in with, I've got nothing to learn, then that's the beginning of things going nowhere. Of right. You know what I mean? It's Absolutely. Like having an open mind about the whole thing and always striving for whatever it is. And, you know, it's like if, 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 if I thought that I know exactly what you want, Jeff, and here's how it's done, you would have had the first setup that I suggested and then you wouldn't be very happy. And it's listening to you and then vice versa. And same thing goes with musicians or, you know, like productions is everything. Everyone has to listen to each other and then try to kind of hear where there's room for improvement.
1: What year, I out of, just a question from left field, what year were you at Sound City? Because um, that's since closed and I think it's mm-hmm. reopened. Is that correct?
3: I think you're right about that. I was out there in 76 when I joined Rick Springfield. And, of course, I think it was really a lot of time spent between 78 and uh, 80 on my own stuff.
1: Well, so, I'm, I'm just trying to get my dates in order, but I've got a f- feeling that Fleetwood Mac were recording yes, there around that time.
3: Absolutely. So was Tom Petty. If oh you God. you look online, I mean, even the movie, the documentary, Sound City, it just has one icon after the next, and Nirvana, and it, it was not a great studio either. I mean, it wasn't like it, the the cutting room was set <laughs> up with any thought. It was a big box. It was a kind of a dump. It was,
0: yeah. Actually, I think that's what they kind of go over in that documentary. Is like yes. in a way, yeah. it was kind of a dump, and it wasn't the like the most expensive studio, but. It began to get this vibe. I mean, after Fleetwood Mm. Mac. And I mean, when did Sound City really all of a sudden take off? Was after Fleetwood Mac and Tom Petty, right? A little bit. Well,
3: then uh, uh, Keith Olsen then had his studio. I think, I can't remember the name of it. Something Midnight, something. He he sort of continued the White Snake and all kinds of other big bands were coming through there too, through his studio. But they all kept it in the same facility. Mm. Couldn't have asked for a better vibe as far as learning. And having a feeling that something great was going to happen, I just didn't know where or how. And and I just felt like I was in the right place at the right time. But, you know, my personal success was out of that was my education. So I didn't get a record deal out of it, even though they tried. They gave me the opportunity to go and record all kinds of music, which was great. I I didn't know whether I wanted to be jazz fusion or country or if I wanted to have a string section on a song, they went ahead and got... Jimmy Haskell and paid for him and some of the best players in in L.A. to come in and play on this thing. And I was just like floored that they were willing to invest in me like that, as they did a lot of people, including Rick. Where I don't hear of anybody doing that anymore without their hands out. I mean, or in some other odd way that they're taking the 360 deal and taking everything on your live touring to your merch, to your this and that, just to be able to. Yeah. Well, basically, it feels that way when you look at these deals that are People are having to sign now. That's why I think a lot of indies here are doing much better uh, that have broken out of that scenario and have taken upon themselves to put their own labels out and do their own... Because they have touring and fan bases. It's a no-brainer to me to to not deal with a a, a record company mentality, corporate mentality, unless you have to need them for money, like a bank. So I I have mixed feelings, but I'm dealing with a lot of independent indie artists that are funding themselves and, and some have deeper pockets than others. And I think that there's a real... Uh, hats off to them for willing to take a chance in a market that doesn't show any signs of any hope other than there are ways to get you out there. And there's a way to promote a record and boost your profile. Like I can work with a promoter that we can get somebody on Billboard if the the music is of a standard and it's a cost to it, but you can get a certain amount of weeks on Billboard to give yourself above the noise. Uh, But I think it goes deeper than just what you can buy. I think it really has to come down to the music. The ones I have the most fun with personally as a producer and, and, and an engineer that I just, uh, it's up for uh, They're running in the Grammy this year. I don't, I don't, we hope they'll make it, but they certainly deserve one just from the attitude that they came in was we have a vision and we want you to help us paint that. And we don't care if the format is a, B, a, B, C, or, you know, your stock pop format, we want to go some really different places. Speaking of this perfection that we did earlier, not only was that refreshing, even though at first it took me about four or five times to listen to it to go, I think this can actually work, but it also came with a lot of imperfection in their playing. And I thought it's not necessarily bad, but you could tell it wasn't the perfect studio musician performance. So we started. We I started with. I think we need to replace the guitars, but I'm not quite sure yet. Let's just go in and just try this out. And I would play guitar normally, but I there are certain things I like to sit back and just produce. It gives me a better perspective, and I, especially when I'm playing things that I don't have a lot of say, a lot of acoustic guitar work. I would probably get a guy next, you know, that just that's all he does, <laughs> or a chicken picker or something like that, because that's what they're great at. And uh, anyway, so I had a guy come in, and it was everything he did just sounded wrong. So we, it, was a, it was a real epiphany to me because that got me back to the perfection was wrong, you know, and the idea of getting things too slick throughout the whole entire project was, wasn't like we were looking to do things bad. It just there had to be a certain way that it all blended around them first and they had to be the guitar players. That's what it really came down to as the foundation and then all the rest of it sort of fell into place after that. There were also some other technical issues that I don't think they would want me to share right now but it was a real challenge that maybe one day when they give me the okay to talk about it i'll i would love to share that
4: can i can i pivot off the perfection notion and go in a different direction and that is talk about microphones for a second yes or 10 or an hour (laughs) Uh, if you start
2: that conversation on this show we'll be here Uh, for a uh, week
4: uh, (laughs) (laughs) andrew you get to edit this first so yeah that's right with me (laughs) (laughs) but um I mean, in my little world of voiceover, you know, a voice actor really needs a mic. Right. right? And they, they chase their tails sometimes trying to find the mic. For you, um, is the mic the thing? Or do you feel like you can put up a reasonably good mic in the right place, in the right room, and get a darn good recording and move on? Do you, do you obsess over the microphone choices? Well, my budget didn't allow me to obsess over it. Uh because mm-hmm. I couldn't
3: afford the kind of mic locker that Oceanway has and and Blackbird sure. and, and and when you really get down to it the choices were minimal to me uh obviously I'm on an uh, SM7B right now and I think it's an incredible broadcasting mic it it actually worked really well as a, an inexpensive mic for singers that are really edgy you know there's no other mic that I can put in in the equation that would soften them up enough to uh you know take that 3k or 1k thing out of their you know, especially higher mm-hmm. range singers. But I found that the Slate mics really, really work for me and because of the modeling capabilities. I think by themselves, if you just put up a, a, an M-L-01, I think you'd be disillusioned. And I think that's where a lot of people go, oh, I don't like the sound of that mic. And it's like, well, that's not what you're doing. You want to record it flat. That's what they've designed it for. It's like a speaker, it's flat. And then you put the first model on and you go, wow, okay. And then you've got all these incredible models and they actually i've been going back to the ml2 models for the vocal stuff almost
0: enjoying them more do you find with the options of having emulated microphones and emulated preamps that you are changing those aspects a lot after the fact absolutely and okay I, oh. the only
3: time i'll i'll record with something is if i have if i know i'm going to stack the singer and i'm going to do you know 20 vocals or, you know, whatever, a stack of three times five or whatever, or times six. And, and I know that it's going to be a nightmare trying to model that many things. I just go ahead and put it on an auxiliary track. And, you know, as Appreciate. long as you put a T- TDM plugin first on, a, on an active track, it'll, it'll activate the slate even though it's native, where mm-hmm. most, won't, most plugins don't work that way from my understanding. At least I don't think.
4: You basically print...
0: The there's a process. Yeah, I put it plug as e, yeah, so
3: I put it on an AUX if I'm doing multiple ones, or I'll just put it on a, a some I guess some, some,
0: some TDM plugin just yeah. to take the space yeah.
3: And then it activates the slate, so I can use that whole rack. And I don't the singers don't hear any problems
0: as long as I'm down around one twenty eight. Right, with the latency. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Saves you all the processing after the fact of bogging down your system or having to go through the time of printing all that stuff. Correct. Later, on, when yeah. it's
3: on the AUX, yeah. Right. And then, that's then bus, busing to 20 tracks or 30 tracks or whatever I want. It does have, you have to be careful like anything else like you would know. You don't want to use too much of it because if you commit anything like compression, which I try not doing, I try to have the compressors and all that stuff can be on the regular tracks after recording. But I try to get a nice model that's not too over the top because you can saturate them, especially with the ML2s. They give you a proximity fader, and I think it's really great because I actually wish they put those proximities on the ML1s. Because they actually really feel like you're you're closer and further away from the microphone where the other ones I'm not quite sure what they're doing. I think it's like a tube saturation like the old uh, Antares had a tube saturator mic modeler or something like that. it sort and, of and, Antares
0: out. had 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 mic modeler, but it was single ended so they they claimed to like turn any mic into another mic, but you didn't have to start with a fixed mic in the first place, I think it was it was a little bit dubious the way it was presented, I think. It's it's kind of funny because there's been a lot of the mic emulation and preamp emulation happening for years, and it seems like in the last two years, maybe at the most three, a lot of the preamp and mic emulation stuff has really sort of come into its own. you got a couple plugins from UA. There's the Oceanway Townsend. plugin, mm-hmm. for example, and then there's the whole Unison concept from UA for the preamps, um, and... But this this goes back to the liquid channel from Focusrite, where it kind of started with preamp emulation and whatnot. I think mm. that was that was probably the first system that was really good at it. It was a little bit expensive.
4: Yeah, there's the TC Gold too. That was did some pretty good stuff too. But yeah, the liquid channel was the emulator. I'm trying to emulate. I actually have a really low end Roland mic preamp. It's literally what I'm talking to you right now through. It sounds great. And it's the uh, MMP. Let me see. I can barely see in the dark it's the mmp 2 and it's it's uh and i'm using a, a an mxl 1006 which is like a 20 year old baby that's what microphone. i'm on man
0: <laughs> it's so funny 100 dollar mic robert and i <laughs> we both we love these, these like mics. things because you can throw them in a backpack and not care about it cuz it's a 100 dollar mic but yet i know it sounds it's a, it's like the it, it's like this mic was the mic that broke that 100 dollar large diaphragm condenser barrier where I I mean, when it came out, I shit you not. The thing came out, I bought like (laughs) five of them. And and since Mm -hmm. then, actually, I had um, Bee's Knees in Australia modify one and make a wonderful tube mic out of one of them and stuff. But, yeah, they're crazy good mics for the budget. What Jeff was saying, like when
4: I was starting as an engineer, I I really kind of started out at the gate on my own. I never had a brief stint interning at Sigma Sound in Philly and just long enough to see, okay, that's not my world. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for letting me sit here for a little while, <laughs> moving along now. <laughs> but um, but to, to, to get the best possible recording out of, out of a minimal amount of gear mm-hmm. and make it sound as best that you possibly can, and then when you get the good tools, you know what the heck to do right. with them. Yeah, um, exactly. Is huge. Have you played with the Townsend Labs?
3: I, uh, I recommended that to uh, Ravis and Cole, which is the act I was telling you about. I gave them two choices. I said, I'm investing in two of the Slate ML1s because I wanted the ability to have two stereo and I didn't particularly like the idea that it was in one microphone. And they mm-hmm. had a price at that point that was very reasonable for 50. I think it was a Black Friday thing with the yeah. mic prees, both were 1500 bucks. With the Townsend, it was no deals, 1500 bucks Plus then you have the plug-in from UA and, uh, and you still don't really have a really great way of spreading those mics. And it did take two inputs, which... It was a little bit odd to me but I'd heard that come back and it was really really nice. I would I wouldn't say that it's any better than what Slate would be unless I had it here to do a complete AB and a real true uh apples to apples scenario but I was really impressed with it.
4: I love it. I love that you you have the you've been doing this long enough to have a you know have that basis of working in that world of analog and and, and all that and now knowing it so well that you're happy to move on and make use of all the new things that are coming down the the pipeline. That's awesome. I mean, I, I I guess, I guess you kind of have to nowadays, huh? I mean, to really stay ahead of the curve.
3: I I have to say I've never been one to look backwards and, you know, working with source connect here and I'm not meaning to plug, but I am Um, because you really uh, all are just, (laughs) well, (laughs) no, I mean, that's why we, I mean, Robert's been incredible working on this setup that I've been trying to do for many years is to bring people together through virtual recording. I'm sitting in, in this land, and I want to get back on that point. But, Robert, you've been incredible in, in yeah. finding ways to adjust my system so it can be not only user-friendly for me, but user-friendly for the artists and clients that I'm working Robert with. Robert
4: is a king of problem solvers. Man, yes.
3: unbelievable. I've seen many at work, and he is genuinely talented. And I, Robert, I've told you that face-to-face. You. I'll say it here publicly. Because it's genius what you've been able to work out for this setup, and I don't mind sharing that later if you want to. Because uh, yeah. I think a lot of people would really appreciate the simplicity that you've been able to get out of this setup and with very few plugs, because we watched the budget, you know, I kind came from NiceCast, which was, if anybody knows about Rogue, I think it's Rogula or Rogue. Ro-
0: Rogue, Rogue Amiga. Amiga? Yeah, Rogamita. I, can, I can, I can kind of fill in some gaps here please, real quick. Please, Yeah. So, so basically the setup I did for Jeff was based on his need to basically work remotely with his clients and in a number of different modes. Maybe he's, Um, Mixing, And so they're just needing to sort of be a fly on the wall in the mix session and make their comments or he's overdubbing and with a musician in Nashville, but the songwriter or the band is still remote. And so they want to be a fly on the wall in that overdub session um, and things like that. It's not so much of a Source Connect Standard Pro thing where it's two people recording from one system to the other. It's more of a monitoring setup, and that's where mm-hmm. Source Live is the better tool. It um, it doesn't require that other people have Source Connect, so they can just have any system, a web browser, a simple free app that they can download, and they can basically sort of virtually be in with Rick's session. The thing I specifically set up for Jeff was that. Source Live is great for its quality and its consistency, but it has this two-second latency. And so to provide him a hybrid setup where he has a very low-latency, fairly high-quality connection, which we're doing through Source Connect now, or a very high-quality but, again, high-latency connection through Source Live. And depending on any moment in time, he might need to give them playback through Source Live or through Source Connect now, and essentially, the setup is that he just bypasses one plugin or the other, and his client either hears it instantly, or two seconds later, depending on what the sort of mode of the session is at that moment in time. And the talkback you've, you've given me has no latency at all—well, virtually no latency—and neither on their end either. Right. So we so we routed his talkback through his Pro Tools system, so that it could go to the musician's headphones in his studio, but as well. It could go over to the clients who are hooked up remotely and also the musician who's at a studio can therefore talk to the clients remotely and vice versa.
4: Oh, cool. Wow. You've made
3: your dream alive Oh, in Jeff's studio. Unbelievable. I mean, it really works. And um, the clients have already been, you know, the hardest thing for them to digest is as much as they love the idea of hearing their stream and seeing maybe a my screen on their screen with join.me or something and getting as close as you can with having a telephone or a Skype going at the same time where we could actually have a physical reaction with each other. That two second delay was still the biggest thorn in their side and my side.
0: Right. Which, which and, existed with, with NiceCast as well. You still had that latency with NiceCast. You bet. Cast.
3: It was the only option at that point. And then you were able to find a way to With, with, with a couple, I mean, I've talked to many clients so far and I'm not, I'm still green at this, but mind you, they all opted and I gave them the option. Would you be okay with a little bit of glitching knowing that we're not in a mastering session or we're not in a a mixing session where everything has to be perfect or you'd be distracted? Are you okay with a couple glitching, you know, dropouts or things that, you know, minor ones I'm talking about just a Tiny little thing that might. To, to allow that low latency to happen. That really exactly. low latency, yeah. Right. Exactly. And everybody opted for, no, we'd, we'd like to have that. If you want to just, just give me the option for both, which I can with the simple mute switch, because we have both Nexus uh, Basic and we have the Source Live all in the master fader bus. And wh- whatever one is muted is the one that isn't being sent, of course. And right. I could just easily just change between the two and they have both of their setups on their receiving setup on the other side. So it's up to me to basically give them whatever they wanted at whatever time. And, you know, the talkback is theirs to use as well, and that's working great. We had some feedback issues at first, and we were able to overcome that. It's just brilliant. And that's through a talkback uh, that, uh, again, there were a couple different scenarios that kept coming. It was like, uh, I don't want to get political, but I kept using the example sort of like Obamacare. <laughs> it's like every time you looked at one avenue of of, of making out, you got hit with a brick wall. It just, something stopped us from going the whole way to something that was great. Whether it be on the talkback thing with monitor mode, if I was in a mixing mode and I had a lot of sends going on and I had a headphone mix separate for a drummer, that was going to be a problem because we had to give him the ability to talk to the client as well as me and me to talk to them and everybody. And that was all worked out with just two channels. Uh, 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 I mean, Robert, you can again, elaborate more on that, but it's just, Four plugins on two channels.
0: Yeah, it was a, basically he's got a talkback channel feeding his talkback to the Source Connect Now connection. He's got, it's funny, I'm trying to remember the whole setup, but talkback channel feeding your talkback to the Source Connect Now. And I think if I remember right, your big knob is sending the talkback to the drum booth. That's right. Um, then on the master fader, you've got Source Nexus. Feeding the mix over to Source Connect now, and then you've got the Source Live link feeding the mix over to Source Live, and that's Mm -hmm. two faders. That's only two faders. That's not two
3: faders. That's one fader, but you have on the same. You have them both on through, and then we have a bypass on whichever one I want to send them.
0: That's right. Yeah. So the two plugins are on through, so that obviously you can hear it in the control room, and then and actually, what I thought was neat about the whole setup, because. Because this was kind of cool working with Jeff because there was, um, you know, a, f- a few different incarnations. I think we started out first with just Source Live, and then we, a week later we added in Source had- Connect Now, and then we came back later. And at first we were using his laptop on the side from the Pro Tools system, and that had some various issues, I think, that it was hard to hear the talk back out the laptop when stuff was coming out your control room speakers, and also... The proximity of the laptop's microphone to the laptop speaker was causing a feedback issue. So then, when we integrated everything, all going through your control room speakers, all going through the studio talk, it kind of cleaned it all up. Well, it's answering. so cool
4: because I, I used to go to these, you know, all the trade shows, and I'd see Robert with his crazy demo at NAB or <laughs> or AES, you know. And so now I'm I'm hearing it described, and I'm I'm finding I'm seeing that you're using this in the, in the way that. Robert had intended Jeff, which is really pretty cool. It's a really neat way of of dealing with do you want latency or do you want you know zero drop sound Quality. and letting yeah. letting them choose at any time? It's really slick,
3: you know I've lost some hair on it, but it wasn't because of Robert, and I don't have any hair to lose, but it i uh, you know I mean it just was going back and forth and back and forth and adjusting and and uh or finding that again those brick walls and going, oh man, it's just." I'm halfway there, or I just have a brain fart and I would lose everything and I get lost. I go. It just seems too complicated. And if I'm compl- if I can't make it simple to in my head, then I certainly can't make the client feel comfortable. And and so we had mm-hmm. to keep that in mind too. Is if yep. I, if I would lose it, at some point, which would be a lot sooner than Robert, of course, because his mind is, is just. I mean, it, you are a genius. It really twisted. Is just, my mind uh, yeah. is twisted. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, God, I mean, I it, it, it's. <laughs> you've got a talent and that's not one of my talents, but same time I've always found that I, I use stuff, not based on how much I know of the inner workings of something. I know how it keeps me working creatively and how fast I can work it and how user-friendly it is. And that's exactly what you did with these two faders. It's one of the nicer things about working in the digital world, isn't it? That you can actually do so much with so little these days. Without breaking the bank. I think that's the key. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, sure. I've got a loan out there somewhere that I'm going to be paying off for a little bit. And it, it does sure. get expensive and you have to make sure you don't get plug in I mean, you're sitting there. Is this addiction or am I really, is my <laughs> wife going to love me in the morning if I buy one more plug-in? <laughs> what was that death by a $1,029 dollars plugins. <laughs> <laughs> is that what we said? That's, that's right. <laughs> and I can't get myself to go unsubscribe. I really right. just I, I exactly. got to look uh-huh. at it.
2: Just quickly, George was just mentioning you've you've lived a long time in both worlds, analog and digital. Is there a plugin yeah. that you use that combines those two worlds perfectly for you?
3: That's another good question. I think it would have to be over at the uh, on the UA side because mm. the the ability that they have that they've been able to capture the classics. I think I was trying to find those in the waves. I will say that I'm I'm very very impressed with some of the. Uh, you know, the Ozone 8, Ozone Advance, there's some really exciting things going on in that department that I think, uh, especially in the mastering chain, There's some. it's it's helping you get started, but it's not the ultimate, oh, let me just do this and put it on automatic and see what happens. But And I, I find it very easy on the ears, I would say, but there's always the exception. I mean, I think I'll have to get back to just the UA plugins are, and everybody said it and before I had them I was going yeah 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 and I could buy another Waves plugin and not that they're not great I think they're they're stretching into some areas that are really great as well I mean um,
0: well, I have a question because you've got a, you've got a fair amount of Slate stuff and you've got a fair amount of UA stuff is there a emulated Slate plugin that you also have the same emulated UA plugin and in theory they don't sound different but is is there any difference or, you know, like, 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 have you, have you, or first of all, do you have a theoretical apples to apples between those two to even compare?
3: I did. They had a model uh, that was LX480. They were.
0: The, the lexicon? Yeah.
3: And it was a, something that they originally had, but, and I don't know, I don't remember what, I think it was a 240 and they gave it in their package. And then they discontinued it for some registration reason, which I have no idea why. I had to go back and they, they replaced it with one of their other reverbs, which is great. Uh, but I, uh, to get off track a little bit, I, I started to use this one, um, the 240, which was, I can't remember who made it. Lexicon.
0: Right? Well, well, Yeah, Lexicon is a 240,
3: yeah. But I'm trying to think of the, the company that made it. was Relab. And, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So oh. I'm sitting here. This is almost, a it took me a year to figure out, but, Occasionally I would use two of those. And by the way, I couldn't tell any difference between the two. The problem is I couldn't use any of my presets between the Slate and, and then the, the, the Relab 240. But those were really supposedly the same exact plug-in. But their plug-in, if, you, if anybody's out there and uses two of those suckers at the same time and they have an HD system, you're in for trouble because you're going to have plug-in compensation delays happening at weird, mysterious times. And it took me forever to track it down that somehow or another you take one of those two reverbs out of your chain And the only way you can find these things is on bounces or you can, all of a sudden you'll be playing your mix and uh, plug-in compensation. If you move a track, your whole plug-in compensation goes wacky. It literally is not anything you can reset. It literally, the whole thing is just turned into a nightmare. Um, It's not helpful at all. So I ended up just getting the 480 through UA and I, I, once I found this problem, thanks to the guys over at uh, Digi, they even had me on a beta test on their Pro Tools rig because we couldn't figure out what was going on. And, and they went through all this typical, yes, it's, you know, trash your plugin, trash your prefs. I mean, yes, okay, been there a thousand times. Let's go further than that. <laughs> well, let's deactivate each plugin. We've done that a million times. I don't want to do that again. So, right. and uh, they found a guy just like you, Robert. It just He just didn't give up. And he kept saying, well, try this, try that. And finally, we... We narrowed it down to that it was two reverbs on my i have a way i set up i usually bring in the same or some similar chain of effects on each session that i have so i've got a good starting point i change them around from there and it happened to be in one of my mm-hmm. templates and it just took forever to figure out that it wasn't one it was two of those plugins running in the same wow. session so I just thought i'd share that in case there's any other engineers out there that are sitting in that same scenario I bet someone's <laughs> just going, <laughs>
2: Hallelujah!
4: <laughs> Somebody, yes. And you can PayPal. <laughs> <Yes>. That's right. <laughs> Rick
1: Silverman. Yes, yeah. Rick Silverman. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Rick Silverman. Yeah,
4: that's exactly right. You get to make a new PayPal address just for this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What's a go-to pre, uh, pre-emulator in, in Universal. Do you have just do you have favorites for certain scenarios, or do you just land on certain ones that you just just love? And as far as a bike pre or just a pre to go in, yeah, you know I don't pre. I don't use anything. I don't I, I just yeah.
3: find that it's less is less is more. I have the Dev, I have the SSL, I've got a couple things that mm-hmm. are really uh, I, I've used them, and I I always find I'm okay with a little bit less is more. Just going in, let that slate mm-hmm. be the slate. Again, trying to let yeah. it be as flat as possible and not colored, and then that way I can really. If, it tends to react more on the on the plugins when it's flatter than when I've added more stuff to it. If that makes sense, go ahead. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm.
0: If if you um if if you've got a singer and your and your um you know overdubbing, you don't print your effects. Um, no. But do you put, for instance, especially compression on the singer's monitor? So that they kind of feel it and sing into it and lean into the mic in certain, or, you, or do you leave it completely flat for them?
3: No, I I'll, I'll, on the playback, I'll definitely punch it up for them, because I have nothing to lose. It's It can go anywhere, and, the, and they sing completely different. They'll, they're they'll, they'll, singing they'll, into a compressor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they'll get different. The air comes out differently. They hear themselves, and right. I could just watch the attitude change when I put like a...
4: So, so you were saying, do you put the UAD system in UAD monitor mode, and then monitor... For the
3: I'm not actually, so they can hear. The I'm conduction. not actually.
0: He, he's using a focus, right? So he just has like the UA um, accelerators. Oh,
3: gotcha. <laughs> I opted against the UA. That was going to be my first choice for the for the fact that I wanted the UA plugins. But then I was re- going to be restricted to Thunderbolt, and then I was only going to have, right. As you know, less tracks. And I felt I, I I opted for the two cards, HDX cards, because it's not like I do a lot of t- sessions that are over 240 or whatever it is tracks but just to have the option of 500 gave me a little bit more mixing. Well, if you're
0: using the Townsend, you would, because you'd have like double for every track, right? That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I do like, re- by the way, I don't know if anybody does this. I really like recording this uh, vocal in stereo. I don't know. I, it's just like du- du- duplicating a track, but there's just something about the meat and potatoes of having a stereo.
0: What, what, what's uh, your stereo mic set up for a vocalist? Is it like two, two mics a little, like maybe six inches or a foot apart with the vocalist in the middle?
3: No, I, I, actually, it's just really just having a mono aux and going into a stereo track.
0: It gives oh, really? me a little bit more headroom, really? and I
3: just find that the playback gives me a little bit more that I can keep that vocal on top. Sort of duplicating a vocal track, a simple mono track, and just duplicating it with the same, you know. But that, then it, you get into dual plugins unless you make it into a stereo track. But I, I just think that and bass are the two things that I really enjoy, you know, mono in and stereo record. What 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 does that do? I'm
1: curious because, as as a someone who just sells their voice, what is it doing? Do you think going making a stereo track?
3: I think you all probably could, especially uh, probably could come up with a better technical term. But what it just gives me more amplitude on the. uh, I I get a lower signal, so I'm not hitting as hard, and then I can easily jack that up for some reason or another. It uh, it always seems to give me that much more ammo on
4: on uh, placement. I think I get it because you can record at 60 dB lower. It de- and then they it defaults they, to that I think, yeah. right? And they stack together so you can record with
0: more headroom. But, yes. but you've got it panned out Something left like and right. That. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, it, it's kind of funny because I've seen some, and it's a really cool effect when you do it. But um, imagine two cardioid mics shoulder width apart, singer right between them, mm-hmm. and so now you tell the singer not to move, but of course they do. <laughs> okay. So you're recording this, and it creates this great but subtle space that maybe no one notices except for when they're listening on headphones. I agree. Because it's like a stereo, but so subtle stereo that, it it like like a lot of people, a lot of engineers talk about things being 3D. Um, and, and I think that's kind of a way to create that space in the vocal. I've seen a couple of engineers do that, and when it's done right, it really does have a great sound, and it's a subtle thing, but... Um, yeah, two identical mics spaced apart, singer in the middle.
1: How do you, uh, Robbo? Just out, out of interest, doing mm. voice. You don't record um, a voice in stereo, do you?
2: No, not for what I do. <clears throat> just my, just for you, Jeff. I mostly do radio and TV work. So, um, mm. but yeah, no, not for me. I, I can. I, I've never even thought about it, to be honest. But hearing Jeff talking about that, it makes this um, enormous sense for the the track count and the amount of audio, you've got to squeeze out a, a master bus at the end of the day, though.
3: And getting that vocal to cut through. I yeah, that's, the that's right. Part. Without, the, without its saturation starting to happen on one thing or another.
0: Here's another funny example of a similar thing. If you know, they, Congress a number of years ago passed the Calm Act. Uh, George, you probably know what that is, right?
4: I don't know what the acronym
0: is, but uh, yeah. I'm yeah, basically Congress said no commercial can be louder than this, and they were judging it on the average level, but because most of all of this was based on surround sound and the voiceover is typically in the center speaker, That's, that was a lot of the key for figuring out what volume this is. And so uh, a, a trick is, and it's not necessarily a great way to do it because it can create other problems, but if you take that mono voiceover that should normally just be dead center speaker only and not in the left speaker or the right speaker, And you put some divergence on it, which is basically a spread in surround. So now now you have your voiceover on the left, the center, and the right. Well, how many people do you know at home that have surround sound systems at their house? Most people are listening on stereo. So all this stuff gets folded down into stereo from the surround mix. And now you've just beat the calm act. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You've just made it louder because it all sums up more. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. You're quite been Someone's been sitting I, I didn't down. I come up with that one. Someone's
2: but. been sitting down and doing some think- deep thinking, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, I think know. so.
1: I think so.
0: How <laughs> do I, I, I make my commercial louder?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I'm sure there's a couple of engineers who will nick that for sure and give it a whirl. But yeah. uh, I've got a question for you, Jeff, because you've been in studios for so long. And I, I do remember my days because we're almost the same kind of age. So... <laughs> Uh, my days in radio in the in the seventies. I remember when Kuda's um, album "Bop Till You Drop" came out, which was the first mm. pop album or rock album uh, to be recorded digitally. Do you, you were in Los Angeles when that was happen, happening. Mm. There must have been a bit of talk around the industry about that record being made.
3: Do you remember? I don't remember that one in particular, but I do remember just this huge controversy on anything digital. I mean, from the F, I think it was called an F one. F one Well, yeah that was was
0: basically audio onto a video vhs right i started
3: with that with tim weisberg tim was always uh getting anybody and everybody to give him new equipment for uh to try on his albums and of course i got to experience one of those and we had all kinds of fun toys and uh, that were being being developed to being out there that were brand new and there was a definitive edge that came off of that stuff and i understand and it got off to a bad start but of course with the ADATs and their issues well, with the to start off with and yeah, they, they were edgy great converters yeah definitely and
0: it wasn't even 16 bit uh, yeah
1: do you actually think was, that, that that was probably one of the the most significant changes in recording absolutely. in recent times
3: that's interesting i i think it's there, the daw i think you're right i think in 1996 i went away to the philippines for a year and i i came back and there was a huge change that all of a sudden I found that people were recording inside of their DOS. And with multi tracking, it was ridiculous. In one year, this whole change between 1996 and 1997 that to mm-hmm. me, if that's what you're talking about, Robert, that to me was huge. Yeah.
0: Pro Tools 3, I think, is the thing that mm. kind of changed it. I was using Sonic Solutions oh, yeah. in 1996. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Pro Tools 3, like, you know, in that same era, there was the Studer Diaxis, there's the Sonic Solutions and all this other stuff, but when Pro Tools 3 came out with the TDM cards, I think that was the beginning. Like, that all of a sudden was... uh, Because, like, you know, a lot of those things, Sonic Solutions was priced out of the market for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Studer Diaxis was priced out of the market for a lot of people, but Pro Tools came in with the power and the price point, and it just... It's the same thing that ADAT did to the industry, right? Digital all Mm -hmm. of a sudden became not this $200,000 Sony dash machine. It was a, at that time, whatever it was, a $2,000 deck, but it was still revolutionary. And I think from the perspective of a DAW, I think Pro Tools is the one that broke the market. I think they're, yeah. they're
3: certainly the pioneers back then. I, that's the philosophy yeah. that I love now,
0: where they're, I mean, I can see
3: it in companies like Source Connect, and I can see that they're all looking much past. I, I actually don't see Avid looking that far in advance. I. I I'm quite disillusioned a lot of times with their amount of progress. I just found that they're just they're they're a staple of editing for me. I mean, I've done anything from editing on steroids for film and television to just in, you know, very very fast and intuitive crossfades to file management and they're really great, but I could name a number of these DAWs that are much more powerful and much more user-friendly as far as virtual instruments and and handling, you know, just uh, that world. But I still come back to Pro Tools anytime I really want to have stability and I want to have compatibility with a lot of other major players. I always come back. And the sound, I still can't buck what they're doing. I don't know whether it's... Something that everybody who leans too far on the computer is going to have something that's going to give a little bit too quickly with all these CPU-intensive plugs, even waves. I mean, I can just see them in the background going, "Yeah, take my twenty-nine-dollar plug in, take them more, have a whole bunch." Now you need our hardware. Yep. You know, it's um, n- not that that's we're, bad, we're, but go ahead.
2: just the other day, I was—I I got sent some questions for a, a blog for a radio imaging guy that was sort of doing blogs about other people who do radio imaging and all that sort of stuff. And one of the questions was, what platform do I prefer to work on? And it occurred to me as I was thinking about answering that question that obviously Pro Tools is my weapon of choice, Um, although I can use Audition, I can use Logic, blah, blah, blah. I think for me, the thing about Pro Tools is I don't have to think about the mechanics of what button do I push or what do I do to make this happen I've been using Pro Tools for so long now that that's just automatic and then I've got more time to think about the creative process do you find that absolutely too, Jeff yeah. yeah
3: absolutely and that was sort of where I was getting with Robert was if we could just make this a bit more user-friendly on this source connect scenario that I could think I could I know one of my brain goes somewhere where I know somewhere down the line is going to be more technical than it is creative and uh, we found that sweet spot but I've always, and that's what I've loved about Pro Tools is literally it is simple to get into. Like an acoustic guitar, you can play, sit down in a matter of a day, you could have a couple chords, and if you've never played it before, you're playing guitar, a C, G, and a D. And uh, But to play it great, it still takes years and years and years to master. But at the same time, I think Pro Tools is sort of that way too. That's why they've been able to kind of cross this huge, enormous... Uh, platform of or demographics of people that either have no experience to little to tons that are using that one similar software just that you can have all this incredible extra stuff you know if you buy the cards and yada yada yada
0: my my experience is that like i've been using pro tools since version 2.01 which i think is actually the official first version of pro tools there i don't think there is actually a pro tools version one because that's actually deck and pro edit but sound designer too Sound sure. sound like I was using that too and, and vision and there's, but the thing that's interesting for me, at least having been with, with source elements and having to do tech support and having to do tech support for logic and for all these other workstations is I used to think like, oh man, I use Pro Tools, but I really want that other thing. And then after doing some tech support for these other systems, I started to realize like, um, they all suck and they're all <laughs> great and it's it's a big and it's it's a lot of what you know and for me i think that pro tools has the the most rounded system and especially because it does offer a dsp platform which i think jeff was alluding to before which is you start to bog these computers down with too much native processing and they start to sound different i think and you can offload it on pro tools you can offload it with the ua systems and that keeps the computer running a little bit lighter and everything's more predictable and consistent and fewer crashes. And I think that's been one of the biggest powers of Pro Tools is that they've got this really kick-ass DSP platform and and only in the last couple of years really have, you know, UA and, and some other companies come up with offloaded DSP systems that have... Um, and that combined with obviously the computers getting more powerful. But then mm-hmm. now that Pro Tools has whatever the hell it is, I'm not sure how old I am, that many years of entrenched workflow, now you also not only have to battle the effectiveness that the system is, but also just the motor memory that every engineer has and they know how they work and they know how they want to work and so you can't be retrained. And So that's what every all, all these other DAWs have this uphill battle with is that not only do they have to make it better, but they have to get into the brain of the engineers and the people use it to to weed them away from Pro Tools.
2: Has to be just as intuitive, I think. Yeah, probably, doesn't
3: it? Yes.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well it's like the old the old saying, isn't it? You people are happy to work with a broken tool instead of having to learn to use a new one.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Because they are I'll think about that next weekend when I'm out in the garden, I think.
4: tell us what we should be excited about. What should we be, what's out there now that you're really happy and proud of, um, whether it be film or, or, or music, um, what are a couple of credits. So we should check. Well, if out. you don't mind me doing a little shameless
3: promotion. And, so how many people uh, have
0: Jeff as joinies?
3: <laughs> go for uh, it. Please
4: continue with your plugging. We really want <laughs> to hear it. I love it when you talk to me that way. <laughs> 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 Sorry. I had to go there.
3: Uh, uh, I just like to do a little shameless promotion and just give uh, my websites. and There's a lot of information up there as far as the acts, the most recent acts that I'm working with. A couple that I can tell you offhand are Rick Springfield on his latest uh, Snake King album,
1: which is really uh, good, also, by the way. I've listened to uh, it's great.
3: What I loved about not make this short, but I loved about this album was the same philosophy that I was mentioning about Ravis and Cole. Is that Rick did this album with no expectation of commercial embracing of any kind. Matter of fact, he felt that there would probably be a lot of his fans that wouldn't like this album. And he was sort of feeling that it just he's something he had to do. And it was important lyrically to, to say these things that he needed to say, as well as he wanted to be the only writer and the only producer on the, I believe, the only producer on the album as well. But he didn't want to collaborate on any of the writing like he has done in the past and we have done in the past. And I just kind of went, you know, I think this is great. He's kind of going somewhere where... He's never been. He wants to keep it fresh. He wants to keep it, you know, interesting to him. And therefore, hopefully the crowd will pick up. And I think they have. I felt that confident with the album, the way it came out with, I felt that he should really go for another Grammy this year. So I encouraged him to let me throw it in there. And, uh, I entered it this year for him and we'll see if it sticks. I mean, it's, there's no telling, but I'm very, very, I'm always proud of the work we've done over the last 42 years. And, so I've, I've got to put him first and foremost on that list. My wife, of course, which I won't tell her that she's second. <laughs> just gotta edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> no way. But yeah. my wife, uh, Deborah Lynn, who I'm very proud about, is. We have a, a. We're trying as well to to come up with a new formula, and we've did a folk American. And we're talking so about good. the analog world, and we're talking about all these things that relate to simplicity and not perfection and. You know, without perfection, but at the same time, very musical, leaving air in the tracks, getting that pillowy sound. Her Colwyn Blows album, which was the last release, did that for me, and it was sort of an epiphany with the mixing end as well. It was a good combination of marriage between the way we we kept everything simple on the production and we kept everything very basic on the on the mixing end of things so but there was something that we just weren't reaching above the noise, and she's got Irish roots. So this 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 project, we decided to go ahead and and infiltrate something that's very much part of the bluegrass roots and the country and the folk and Americana roots that she's got, and that's the Irish sort of traditional music that bluegrass or the old style music to, to the bluegrass came from. So the song that we did uh, wrote together called "I uh, Pull Me Down," we actually had the Maids of uh embedded, sort of infused. For lack of better words, into this song. This plays a major role in throughout sort of reoccurring hook. We're going to be doing a combination of uh, old Irish and old sort of Appalachian traditional songs with incorporated in either inside of some of the original songs or by themselves, just original arrangements. So I'd love to play you that particular one. Yeah, that's right. You can find sort of pointers to go to it from my palletmusic.com net site that's p-a-l-e-t-t-e music.net and uh there's several projects that i'm you'll see on the front page i didn't waste any time or make it hard for anybody to get to and there a lot of them are some of the most current ones
2: i can't let you go without telling you about the massive influence you must have had on my youth growing up because flicking around that website a minute ago and noticed one of your tv credits is tj hooker one of my favorite <laughs> shows when I was a kid. <laughs> How much did you have to That's do with right. that?
3: Oh, I had a song that actually recorded at Sound City called Love and Eyes. <laughs> and they, they put it in one of the shows. So... Uh, I loved really TJ have...
2: Hooker as a kid. Oh, well. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me you'd done the theme music or something. I was going to I'll be on the floor bowing down. You're my hero. You're my hero.
3: <laughs> not in this life, but I'll, 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 there's still time. There's still time. Give me time. I'm not on that side of the grass yet. Until then, I'm still working my butt off.
1: I've uh, got a quick no, question sorry. before you go on with the other stuff. I want to ask you just about the Rick Springfield record, and I started listening sure. to it, the new one. Who's playing? Is that Charlie Muscle White playing harmonica?
3: Uh, you know, I've got it on the credits here. Let me. I, it's the guy who originally played on Bob Till You Drop, speaking of which. Oh,
1: and really? I, that, that's bizarre. Uh,
3: and so it's the original guy that he's used a long time ago. Great, great player. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Uh, the other website, not to get back to me again, but. <laughs> no, back to you. Uh, please. <laughs> the virtualstudio networks.com, just like it sounds virtualstudio networks.com. It shows some different videos of me blabbing it does show the process and how i've been working with people all around the world and and how this is going to play a huge role as you can see with source connect or source elements in making this
4: even better is that virtualstudionetworks.com network, yes. dot com? network net, networks right. with Networks nest networks.com
2: i think I, th- I think if it's it's interesting though jeff just to finish up um, sure. what you're what you're talking about uh, you know with you know people virtually listening in and 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 sort of remote contributors from all over the world it's interesting because my my sort of audio world is more post-production and, and radio and all that sort of stuff but it's it's actually mm-hmm. what I'm basing my business around is sort of the virtual studio in inverted commas where you know the client doesn't have to come to the studio to record the voiceover but sits on the beach or sits in their office you know in Sydney or That's Melbourne brilliant. or Brisbane or Perth and and just listens in while the work is done and then can check dip in and out during the mixing process and listening and all that sort of stuff. And I I honestly believe that that's the way my part of this industry is going to go. Do you you see that with with music recording as well?
3: No question about it. It, uh, Cubase has already sort of tapped into that, but nobody that I know has ever been able to make that work. But there there are people that are on the concept. I mean, by the way, the quality that's coming back from everybody is super. So I can see how you can easily be doing voiceover and recording this without any problems at all. I'd love yeah. to be able to do multi-track recording and linking up that's, and doing all the things that's that, coming. Yeah. It's coming. Is it Robert?
0: Um, I've got I've got ideas on how to do multi-track live sessions. And definitely we we've got some we we actually 2 years ago we showed an overdubbing system where you don't have to lock the Pro Tools transports or the workstation transports together so that's you can great. send the cue to the musician, the musician sings or plays, comes back to you. And they hear it in sync. You hear it in sync, and it's all sort of compensated for, auto magically, as they say. It's kind of funny. the The tough thing has been that trying to maintain a company and also at the same time come out with new products and maintain the existing products, and so it's 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 harder to come out with new products as you have other products to maintain and and uh, tech support and everything else. Mm-hmm. But definitely have designs on how to make the whole musicians process of overdubbing seamless and of course to be able to do that in a multi-track context as well
1: well we know who the first person who's going to be using that is it will be uh jeff otherwise known as rick uh, <laughs> yes, silverman,
0: rick silverman. <laughs> <laughs> well they called him bruce
1: bruce springfield or
3: rick, rick <laughs> springsteen i think so it only goes to
1: it feels right at home there <laughs> yeah exactly and on that note I think we should uh, let you get back to your life. Yeah, thank you, man. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you have one. <laughs>
3: it was really great talking with all of you.
1: And it's been uh, an absolute privilege having you on the show. A real oh, treat. Thanks very, a lot, Very Jeff. blessed.
3: Thank you very much. Thank, uh, thank you all. Just yeah, be- Jeff, thank you, man.
1: Before we do go, I just say that uh, while you're listening to this, that none of us are in the same, not, not only in the same building, but not even in the same <laughs> uh, city. Part of the world. We, yeah, we're in Nashville, <laughs> Sydney, Melbourne, Chicago, Los Angeles.
2: Yes. Wonderful.
1: And we should it's finish
2: amazing. by saying, Robert, Boom. thank you. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> That's Robert. Not me. Horn rim glasses. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm the guy with grey hair who don't, I don't know how it got grey. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Running a company yeah, perhaps. Could Probably. be. And on
1: that note, adios. And we leave you with Jeff's better half, Deborah Lynn, with her brand new one called I Pour Me Down. Don't forget, leave us any questions you have on our Facebook page, the Pro Audio Suite podcast. Stars blue midnight, Shadows dancing on the wall Deeper into you I fall Dark, dark is my heart Broken to afraid to start To love again, to twist and bend Believe forever has no end I try to find my way But I just pull me down
2: I can't break free
4: There's no escape
1: gray gray are my days let this candle light my way light the darkness calm my fears hold me till they disappear there's no one for you but me but i can't let myself believe i can't run and i can't hide what i fear is here inside i try to find my way but i just
2: call me
4: Don't no escape. I've lost so far.
1: I drown. Without a breath for me to take. Well, I've only
2: down under the ground.
4: The sky, bonsoir, old thing, cheerio, chin chin, na.